0: Hey, hey, folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. This episode is a continuation of our new series on the Song of Songs, and here, Peter Lighthart and Alistair Roberts are going to be discussing the topic of divine eros, They'll be discussing whether or not divine eros has a place in our theology, and tying all of this in with the allegorical reading of the Song of Songs and God's love for his people. We really hope that you enjoyed listening in on this conversation over this book, and as always, thank you so much for listening.
1: This is Peter Lightheart. I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, who is still sitting at the other end of my kitchen table. Brian Motes is here controlling the equipment and John Crawford is sitting in the other room doing who knows what. Uh, We're all here together. Alistair's presence in Birmingham just brings us together. Uh, We're spending some time uh, making plans for the coming couple of years and uh, doing a lot of video recording and audio recording, as we'll continue to do throughout the week. Uh, We're in the middle of a series of podcasts on the Song of Songs, and we've covered a number of issues about the Song of Songs. We talked a, a little bit about the the date and authorship at the beginning of the series. I talked about the Song of Songs as a wisdom poem and last time we talked about the Song of Songs as an allegory and uh, we uh, gave and discussed some lines of imagery and uh, some statements in the Song of Songs that indicate internal evidence for the allegorical interpretation. Not just an allegorical interpretation as a legitimate way to read the song but rather an allegorical intent on the part of the author that he actually, that uh, Solomon, as I believe, actually wrote it with an allegorical intent uh, that uh, depicting the uh, relationship between the ideal king and his kingdom, uh, ultimately between Yahweh and Israel, more ultimately, I guess, between Christ and his church. So today we want to discuss the question of eros, of desire, and particularly in relation to that allegorical reading. Uh, have kind of a clash between uh, the uh, certain ways of understanding uh, the love of God and the ways that uh, the Song of Songs has been interpreted. And particularly if you uh, follow the theories of Anders Nygren his book uh, Eros and Agape, or Agape and Eros? Eros comes first? I think that's right a classic of modern theology in a sense, but uh, I think an un- un- unfortunate direction for thinking about the love of God in certain senses. Now, Nygren sets up this very stark contrast between eros and agape, uh, two different forms of love. Eros is ascending love. Agape is descending love. As descending love, it's condescending love. And therefore, agape is the love of grace, uh, the love of God's reaching to us. Eros is the love of reaching to God and the love of, you could say, the love that's associated with works, nigran uh, working within a, a, a kind of stark grace and works or faith and works kind of Lutheran framework. Um, Agape is needless. Agape is self-sacrificing and there, it's the love of, that God shows, that Jesus shows on the cross. Uh, eros is needy uh, and eros is, uh, can be and is covetous and possessive it seeks the other. Agape doesn't need the other. It shows a kind of uh, self-sacrifice, but a need, it's, it, it's without need for the other, without need for response from the other. And so, Nigren sets up this stark contrast. In, uh, in and that, in that stark contrast, eros has no place in theology. Yeah, eros is not a description in any way of the love of God. Uh, God's love is entirely agape. But uh, again, the cl- if you. That kind of setup for eros and agape clashes with traditional readings, at least of the Song of Songs, which takes the lover of the song as the Lord. Uh, clearly, the lover is a passionate lover, and so if uh, you have uh, you have an allegorical reading of the Song of Songs and it's about God's love for His people, then you have to reckon with something like divine eros or divine desire. So that's the that's the problem that's uh, uh, that uh, or the question that we want to explore today. There has been a reaction among a number of uh, theologians to the Nygren setup of this problem, particularly within recent Catholic theology. Hans Urs von Balthasar is critical of uh, Nygren's uh, approach to this question and talks very freely in terms of divine eros. Uh, somewhat more uh, moderately, you find similar themes in Joseph Ratzinger Benedict XVI, and particularly in his encyclical Caritas in something... In in the encyclical, uh, Benedict argues that the detachment of eros and agape, their separation, is part of the grounds for the Enlightenment rebellion against Christianity. Uh, a stark separation between divine love and human love uh, seems to detach Christianity from some of the basic interests of human existence. Uh, some of the most uh, some of the richest experience that we have. As human beings, some of the most overpowering experiences we have as human beings are related to erotic love, our expressions of erotic love, and yet that's in in a, if that's starkly contrasted with agape, and Christianity is all about agape and and this uh, descending love. Then a large portion of human life is detached from Christianity; it's not integral to Christianity. So Benedict is as often as he often is is trying to address this question. Kind of from a semi-apologetic angle, that is, he's trying to present a defense of Christianity against the Enlightenment and against um, uh, against the distortions of Christianity that actually provoked the Enlightenment. So Benedict positively goes on to argue that uh, the Bible doesn't uh, deny uh, deny eros, human eros, uh, doesn't deny human desire. It attacks various distortions of human desire, in, in, including. The distortion that was evident in many ancient cultures of uh, deifying eros, uh, literally making uh, desire into a god or a goddess. So, uh, what the Bible presents instead of a a denial of eros is uh, the aim of a purified eros. And Benedict argues that the eros and agape have to be seen as two aspects of the love of God. That God is is a God who descends and sacrifices himself is a god who doesn't need us and yet he's also a god who desires us and seeks fellowship with us that seeking and that desiring love that god shows is not doesn't arise from need uh, doesn't arise from a lack in god uh, as it as it can in human existence our desires for others can be an expression of our neediness but in god that's not the case and yet god does desire God desires us out of His own fullness rather than out of neediness. So that, um, recent theologians have found ways to undo uh, Nigran's uh, stark contrast of eros and agape and begin to talk about uh, uh, eros as a, as a dimension of God's love, which brings it into conformity with traditional readings of the Psalm Songs, which
2: implicitly or explicitly talk about divine eros. When we talk about desire, desire can be that thing that plays in the charged spaces between persons and realities particularly when we're thinking about the loss of that relationship i wonder whether part of it is the narrowing and the shrinking of those horizons in which eros can play so the place of the world within the framework of our relationship with god has the world shrunk in its presence within our understanding of that relationship that the world should be a place that's charged with desire with love and we relate directly to god in a more i thou dimension which is not mediated by the um, charged realm of the world and when you read the song one of the things that does strike the reader is the way that that relationship is so powerfully articulated in the context of these this wider world of sheep goats mountains of this stuff of the world that has become charged with a new meaning a new delight we talk about this in christian terms as well the great hymn heaven above is sweeter blue earth below is softer green something lives in every hue christless eyes have never seen Mm. and that horizon of christian experience that horizon of the lovers experience is not just looking in the face of their beloved but the play of desire within the spaces of the world that's opened up Mm -hmm. by that love and a less capacious world Cannot contain the sort of desire that would help us to understand divine de- desire and er- eros in our relationship to God.
1: Yeah, so you're you're suggesting that the shrinkage is taking place in kind of post Enlightenment modernity. Is that is that the is that the suggestion?
2: Not just in that, but a narrowing of the focus upon our relationship with God to a very much I Thou relationship without the horizon of a wider world, community, etc.
1: Right. Uh, early uh, early in the series, uh, first or second episode, I cited uh, Robert Alter. When I talk about the song, I always cite Robert, Robert Alter's comment uh, where he contrasts the Song of Songs to other romantic poetry from other cultures and the tendency of romantic poetry to uh, eros to be a distraction from engagement with the world. And so uh, the lovers are... Trying to escape off into a uh, into an, a haven somewhere, a lovers' paradise. And there's there's some of that in the song, but there's also uh, you, you have the two lovers at the center of the psalm, in fact, together as in their love garden. But much of the psalm, the, the imagery of the psalm goes in the other direction, where the lover reimagines the entire world in relation to the beloved. Uh, so it's it's a, not just a relationship with her, but it's a a, re- a new relationship with the entire world through this, uh, mediated through this uh, romantic or erotic encounter.
2: And perhaps that's why the modern vision of Jesus as my boyfriend falls so far short, whereas the themes that we've been talking about, the political dimension of Eros, for instance, that that shows a proper understanding of Eros that brings in the wider world and as a result does not feel as improper to apply that language to God. Yeah. So um, we'd want to uh, gloss the opening
1: uh, statements of uh, the Calvinist Institutes, uh, proper knowledge of uh, is the knowledge of God and knowledge of man. We know God by knowing ourselves, we know ourselves by knowing God. But we want to integrate the knowledge of the world into that, that, that the world is the matrix within which we encounter God.
2: And that theater of God's glory is within Calvin's yeah. own theology. I think he has that dimension there to be explored.
1: The, the other thing this makes me think of is the uh, work of Robert Solomon. I, I, I believe the late Robert Solomon. I may be mistaken about his death. Anyway, Robert Solomon was a philosopher uh, at, I think at Stanford and wrote a number of books about love, uh, one of them entitled About Love. And uh, one of the things he uh, what, what, he's, what he argues in there is that love is about the uh, he, he sees it uh, and there's some limitations to this way of seeing. It. He sees love as a kind of incorporation of the other into oneself, and therefore a kind of expansion and uh, of the uh, an expansion of the self. And that may be too ego focused, uh, but it's I think there's a reality there. He talks about the the turmoil of falling in love as the turmoil of uh, redefining yourself in terms of another. So, instead of just having the one solo, solo person that your story, the story of your life is your story, suddenly you have this other person who's integral to your story and it's now our story. And that, uh, that redefinition of the self is, uh, uh, is, uh, 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 is part of the experience of falling in love. It's that incorporation of the other into, into your own self-conception that's, that is the state of love. But that, that involves re, a renewed seeing of everything because now you're, um, you're seeing everything through, not only through your own eyes, but through, some, but through your beloved's eyes. So I think that, that fits with the kind of uh, picture that we've been, we've been describing.
2: When we talk about music, for instance, music is very much this charged distance between, or relationship between notes that are held together in being held apart. And I wonder, when we're talking about Eros, there's something about Eros' regard for otherness, that at the heart it is this desire, this thirst for the other, that it does not just... We can think about it as threatening God's transcendence, mm-hmm. but maybe it also understood properly, it secures a certain, sort of, a certain sort of transcendence, that God is truly other, and so properly the object... Of creation's desire.
1: Mm -hmm. It fits with another criticism that I would have of Nigrin. He sees uh, Eros as a possessive, grasping kind of love. He's got a very negative portrait of Eros. And Agape as dispossessive and uh, needless. But uh, there's a, and bringing this back to the song, there's a certain right kind of possessiveness in love. I mean, that's what jealousy is. And jealousy is. invoked at the end of the song as a, as a positive thing the love of the, the love that it, the flame of yah is jealous as jealous and severe as shale so there's a possessiveness a proper possessiveness to love that the uh, lovers have a claim on each other and I think that again when we speak of divine eros uh, that's part of the biblical picture that God loves us he doesn't again doesn't need us but he loves us and he expects reciprocity, expects response. There's a, again, kind of possessiveness, a mutual possessiveness as part of the uh, part of divine love.
2: When we think about Song of Songs, even within the first word of the title, we have the fact that this is a song and there's something about songs that are connected with love and eros and desire. Why do we have that connection? And how can we see this as informing our understanding of theology more generally? Is there a certain form of theology that requires hymns and psalms and spiritual songs that we're in danger of losing within a prosaic form of theology? Yes.
1: If I were were Jim Jordan, I would say um, that's that's the case because the Spirit is the music of God, and the Spirit is the matchmaker. And so, uh, in kind of an Augustinian framework, the love that is uh, shared by the Father and the Son is the Spirit. That love is the love that's poured out on us. Uh, the love That love is also the love that inspires song in us. And so, there's a, there's a, there's a link between the Spirit as uh, music, the Spirit as matchmaker, the Spirit is the one who binds us together. So I, I think that uh, I, I'd go numerological on you.
2: <laughs> and when we're reading the song, another thing that should strike just about any reader is the profound and surprising arresting connections that are drawn between things and its metaphorical, um, and its imagery is surprising and arresting. There are vast differences that are collapsed in these or connected through these very charged images Mm -hmm. how do we that is a sort of bringing together that maybe charges language itself with a sort of eros Mm -hmm. that helps us to think about the way that we speak about god even Mm -hmm. Um, there is an erotic character to the language Mm -hmm. that we use of god that is Mm -hmm. analogical but analogical in a way that truly connects with its object, when we Mm. talk about God as rock, when we talk about God in these various forms of the consuming fire, whatever it is, that these images reach out and connect with their Mm. proper object through an erotic connection. Mm. Um, And that theological language is something that is a language of love. Yeah. So the the
1: the, uh, just to clarify what you said, make sure I'm following. So uh, what we have in symbolic language or biblical imagery is not simply a kind of static this and that, this equals that, or this signifies that. But there's a there's a dynamic where the symbol draws us into the reality that's being that's being symbolized.
2: And also that love allows for. The drawing together of realities that otherwise are very much held apart and so the person who's trying to break this down how do you explain the experience and the perception that arises from love to someone who is not in love Mm -hmm. that experience of love calls forth song it also calls forth a certain form of speech that desires to connect things together Mm -hmm. it's a poetic form of speech it's Mm -hmm. a speech that to what can I compare This experience this reality and the lover is someone who naturally is drawn towards these extremes of language who's push, pushing language into being something that is capacious and rich and vibrant and fertile in a way that the person who's not in love mm. they do not have that same desire to sing that same desire to write poetry
1: yeah and just to just to highlight a couple of uh, couple of images that are used in that regard and, and this will circle back to the original uh question that I was posing the, the song begins with a comparison of the the uh the bride speaking and comparing the love of her beloved with uh with wine it's uh your love is better than wine kiss me with the kisses of your mouth, your love is better than wine uh now that's a multi sensory kind of image. She's just talked about kisses. she's talking about a taste it's um, we judge wines by their by their appearance, by their aroma, I think perhaps most basically by their intoxicating capacity uh, and his love is better than the best wine. His love is better than more intoxicating and more disorienting than the best wine so you have this you have this um, unfolding of the Ba- basic comparison of love to wine. What's interesting in the song, though, is that that same imagery is turned the other direction. And again, this this goes to the uh, question of divine eros that we started with. Uh, at the beginning, the the bride is saying, your, your love is better than wine. The man's love is better than wine. By the middle of the book, he's returning the compliment uh, in chapter 4, verse 10, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride, how much better your is your love than wine. The fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices she was speaking of the oils of the king and the drawing her your oils are like a pleasing fragrance your name is like purified oil draw me after this is the beginning of the song draw me after you and let us run together the king has brought me into his chambers so there's a comparison to wine there's a there's a reference to fragrance that's an expression of the bride's desire for the bridegroom the middle of the book is the bridegroom's desire for the bride that's turned back so you get this mutual intoxication the fragrance is going both ways they're both attracted to one another by the fragrance and you have a number of points in the in the course of the song like where that happens we have imagery that initially goes in one direction describing one or the other of the lovers and then gets inverted so there's this kind of mutual uh this, there's this mutuality and reciprocity that is developed in the poem take that into the allegorical register then there's this kind of Reciprocity, mutuality between God and His people, which is just what we would expect from more straightforward uh, passages like Ephesians five. They, you know, Christ is the head of His church as the husband is head of the bride. He loves her as His own body. There's this uh, this uh, one fleshness that exists between Christ and His church. Uh, let me point to a couple other that I find really striking. A couple other shifts like that that uh, uh, raise the question of divine eros, kind of raise it to its highest pitch in, in a sense. Yeah, you know, at the beginning of the song you have the bride speaking about the lover the lover's banner over her, your banner over Mia's love. That's in two four. The picture is of a kind of it has a military connotation, the banners are the banners of an army. And there's a kind of uh, portrait of conquest not captivity perhaps, but the, the the bride has been brought into the banquet hall in his banner of Mia's love. So there's a she's been brought into his house and she's not been held captive, but she is the pictures of him being victorious but in the courts of the song that's reversed and the the bridegroom eventually describes the beloved as being like an army with banners he is in awe of her as she was at the beginning in awe of him and then the description in chapter seven the second of the two big uh, set poems the lover describing the beloved's hair your head crowns you like carmel and the flowing locks of your head like purple threads the king is captivated by your tresses. Captivation we think of as emotional captivation or fascination but in Hebrew as in English it's to hold captive, it's the king is being, the king is the one who's now conquered. The beginning she's in this position of being conquered and now the king is now conquered. Uh, At the end of the poem the king is conquered. So, you have this kind of reversal going on and again you have a, uh, when when you bring that up into the allegorical register, you have this portrait of... Again, of a God who is uh, not just uh, showing a kind of agape love for his, for his people, but a God who is passionately attached to his people and who is uh, in the, the portrait here is that the Lord is kind of overwhelmed by the love that he has for his people. the love that he is, I mean we can we could theologize and make it clear that that's not God being captured by or overtaken by something outside himself and yet it's described as the love that he has for his church.
2: When we use the language of the erotic within our particular cultural context, I think we so easily shade that into the pornographic. But yet, there's something about the way the song uses language that is anti-pornographic, not just in the sense of not being pornographic, but something that's directly contrasted with it. pornography's attempt to grasp the other, to contain and to get a direct, unmediated approach to the other. And yet when we read the song, there's an this very mediated and indirect approach to the other, which never quite captures or controls the other within the gaze, mm. that seems to be a rhetoric that's appropriate to eros Mm. in a way that the pornographic is utterly opposed to
1: Mm. yeah and which makes it unfortunate that you have interpreters of the song evangelical interpreters (laughs) um, who see nothing but uh, slightly veiled um, anatomy in the song of songs
2: and that idea to see through language to get a For language to become transparent that we might get a direct control on its object rather than actually seeing language as a means of presence to its object without actually giving us control.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and yeah, so the the poetry of the song is is fitting to the uh, fitting to us to a kind of non-dominating non-controlling love.